Hi, filmmakers. Welcome to this week's Filmmaking Stuff podcast. We have a very important guest with us this week. For those of you who have never heard of her, which you should have, her name is Carol Dean. And just to give you a little bit of a background on Carol, 30 years ago, she took a $20 bill and turned it into a $50 million a year industry when she reinvented short ends. The result of her vision and her venture gave birth to the Hollywood independent film movement because she offered film to indies at prices they could afford, which allowed many producers to go into great successes, including customers like Cassavetes. As president and CEO of From the Heart Productions, Carol produced over 100 television programs. She's also responsible for the Roy W. Dean Grant, which has provided independent filmmaker grant recipients with close to $2 million. In addition to these wonderful accomplishments, Carol's also authored two very influential books, the first of which is called The Art of Film Funding. And what makes this an interesting um, interview is I can remember reading a copy of the first edition of that book and being influenced by Carol's words. And that was long before I made my first feature film. So Carol, I guess you can add me to the list of independent feature filmmakers for which her work has been invaluable. Uh, in addition to Art of Film Funding, Carol's follow-up book entitled The Art of Manifesting, Creating Your Future, has been influential in helping filmmakers plan an ideal and abundant life for themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the show, Carol. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. Filmmakers, I love it. Well, that, what got you started working with filmmakers? I mean, why short ends? And maybe you could explain what short ends are for, for the digital revolution. Yes. Well, there was a time, long, long time ago, when you could only shoot on film. And that was always the most expensive part of the budget because you could usually rent a camera for a Friday until a Monday and shoot for the whole weekend uh, and get a lot done on your film, but not unless you had the raw stock. So. Rostock was used for television as well as motion picture films, and I was married to a cameraman who uh, let me come on his set every every other Friday night or so. I'd get to dress up and go, and I watched why they would say, uh, cut, reloading, and then they would put a new magazine on the camera, and, and I saw that magazine go back, and I thought, well, they started with 1,000 feet, and they only ran it for two minutes, so there's a lot of film left there. So I kept saying, what are you doing with those little pieces of film? And I, he said, oh, shh, Carol, he said, they, nobody cares about that stuff. Um, film is the least expensive thing on a production. And I said, but I think I can sell those little short ends. And he said, oh, never. Nobody buys film that doesn't come direct from Kodak. Well, I was so determined I could just see this business. And um so finally, he relented and said, take $20 from the grocery money and see what you can do. And I did, and I had typed 250 letters, and I got one reply, Jason. Now, who were those letters to? <laughs> well, I, that was part of my $20. I spent about $4 at the library photostatting every production company in L.A., San Diego, San Francisco. And then I wrote to them saying, why not buy short ends? You don't have to buy new from Kodak. And I gave a good sales pitch. And I got one customer. And uh, and then when he called me, you know, I had no inventory, right? 
So he said, he said, well, right, I'll give it a try. He said, I shoot 100 feet a day, so a short end's not going to be. Well, how long are they? I said, oh, 300 feet. He said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So bring me 2,000 feet. I'll give it a try. So, dang, I had, one, no money, two, no film. So I called a guy. I knew the camera department at Columbia Studios, the man named Bill Wiedemeyer, and made an appointment to come see him. And when I got there, I was all dolled up. This is the day of many, many skirts and uh, low-cut dresses, and I wasn't bad-looking. So when I got in his office, we had a, a big chat, a long chat, about I was booked uh, mentally ready for all the productions Columbia had made recently. So we had a lot to talk about. And then I came to the point, and I said, you know all those little short ends you have in that vault? I'm going to buy all of them, and I want you to give me a price. So he, I'd already sold this at four cents a foot. And so he, <laughs> he said, uh, well, how's a cent a foot? Perfect. I said, perfect. Now, today, I only need 3,000 feet. And he started laughing. He said, you're going to ride a jet to Columbia Studios for $30? And he really thought I was joking. But anyway, it, when I wouldn't get up, he stood up to say the meeting is over, and I kept sitting there. And he said, okay, okay. So he gave me the Rostock, and I ran home, cleaned the cans, relabeled them, d delivered the 2,000 feet, got my check, ran deposited in the bank to cover the purchase check, and I was off and running in a little business on other people's money. And I, my first investment was I had a 1,000 feet of inventory now. And that's how it started. And then something happened where, where this caught on for the independent filmmaking movement. It did. Um, actually, I hit the nudie, the emergence of the nudies, the emergence of Cassavetes and Corman. Now, Cassavetes only wanted nukes, so he could keep his camera rolling forever, you know, and not interrupt his actors. And the uh, fun was that film was in emulsions, like a dive at, and every cameraman would reserve their own emulsion, and anything that was left over, new or short ends, was discarded. So I could buy new very inexpensively, and that's how I got uh, the cam. Uh, I got Cassavetes to buy for me, and Corman was fine to take short ends because by then I'd learned how to test them, and I could sort of guarantee they were okay. <laughs> anyway, I, it was the, it was the 70s, and it was just a wild time. You drank your lunch. Key martini lunches was common. And uh, the whole industry moved on who you knew, and and uh, you could have a dream and fulfill it. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to the film movement that took place in, in the uh, early to mid-1990s, which was around the time, by the way, that I got very interested in filmmaking. And at that time, still, the only way that you would be taken seriously as a filmmaker was by shooting on film. And short ends were still a thriving industry back then. Were you still involved in the business at that point? Oh, of course. By then I had spawned four competitors, and, uh, and I still had a very good business of selling short ends. But, but along the way, I had taken – actually, Fuji came to me and gave me a uh, film, uh, the United States distribution on a handshake as an exclusive and here's, here's a story of creating your future. When, back in the 70s, 
I learned that Fuji was making Rostock. And I went to Japan and went to Fuji into the factory and the headquarters, and I asked for a distribution for a, a distributorship. And of course, the guy who had it in California was Teitelbaum, who was a very, very wealthy man and owned several businesses. And they didn't laugh at me or anything, but they, they were very courteous, as the Japanese are. But I never give up that dream. So in the 90s, early 90s, I went back to Fuji because now they had the product. It was even better than it had been back in the 80s, 70s, 80s. And they gave it to me. That's so phenomenal. I had a lot of fun. And I marketed it to uh, directors of photography and got to know them because they are such brilliant people. You know, they have to be totally right brain with the spatial concepts and left brain to know all the technical aspects. So I had a lot of fun working with them. And I had picked up by then all of the videotape people, and um, somewhere along the line, I bought a machine to clean and evaluate tape and redesigned that and then ended up with the, the largest recycling company in the United States. During all of that time, you must have found out that, you know, one of the biggest difficulties that filmmakers have, in addition to getting all of the, the, the film that was necessary, was raising the money. Now, you as an entrepreneur, um, and you sound very creative, a lot of filmmakers that I talk to, for the most part, think about the art of funding as not so much an art, but more a business. And yet, you look at it as an art. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, it is an art form, but you have to be an entrepreneur to be a filmmaker. You truly do. You're required to wear, I believe, even more hats than an entrepreneur. But, um, yes, I started, um, we, we were selling Rostock to filmmakers, and <laughs> we would get check 101 or 102. 103 was, uh, you know, we knew there had been two more places before us, but usually we were the first one they came to when they got their funding. Now, what you had to worry about, uh, not, was, not the 1023 check number, but when the numbers got up to 158 or 160, you're thinking, oh, are they running out of money? And um, I, I did very well with filmmakers. I mean, I was, uh, they're honest, caring people, and sometimes mistakes did happen. But the biggest, the most fun thing, I, I look back now, it was fun. It wasn't at the time. But I was going through my accounts receivable one day in the 90s, and we had Howard Anderson. We had all these big companies that were buying film and tape from us. And there was this name, Jama Vanaka. And we never gave credit to individuals. So I came down from my my upstairs corner office saying, who in the Sam Hill gave credit to this man? And I saw my father sort of put his pipe in his mouth and start chewing on it. And I thought, oh, no, you <laughs> didn't, Dad. He said, well... You know, that's the that's a smartest guy, and he's got a great story to tell, and he couldn't make that without that film. And I realized he gave him $10,000 of Rostock. That was a lot of money. So um, Daddy said, you have to keep the faith, Carol. And I said, okay, Dad, I will. But by the same token, I put a lean against his film, which I found <laughs> out it was at Fox, so good business. I put a lean against it. I kept the faith. 
and Jama came back to me, and he uh, was given a screening room to or an editing room on the lot because they did the developing and couldn't get their money either. So he paid me. He bought himself a silver cloud Rolls Royce, and he told me he was going to call it Roy Dean because without Roy, that first all-black film, uh, Penitentiary, would never have been made. And is that sort of where you got the idea for the grant? Absolutely. Um, well, Dad had his own grant going that I didn't know about. You see, that I thought that came through receivable, so I figured that was maybe a one-time only. But then when I – I always had inventory shortages, and my father was <laughs> brilliant at math. But one time it was exactly 10,000 feet, Jason, in 16-millimeter. I said, I know it's in a box somewhere. And you forgot to count it. He said, no. He wouldn't lie, see. So he said, I know it's in a box, but it's not here. It's on location. And then he had to admit he gave it to a filmmaker to make their thesis film. So when he when he died, uh, I got all these letters from people he had helped. I, I started the film grant. And out of, out of all of this care and love and, and passion, uh, was that the inception of the book? Is, is that where you got the idea that you really needed to help these filmmakers understand at least the art of funding? Yes, yes, truly, because I see a lot of filmmakers who have a passion for filmmaking, and maybe they're just all right brain or something, but they cannot get the uh, business side going. So that was the concept behind it, to get uh, to, so they could have something in writing to lean on and find ways to do it. But um, but it takes both sides of your brain, as you know. You've got to first you have to have the confidence that you can do this because people don't give money to films; they give money to people. Jason, if you were making a film, I'd put my money on you not the film. And so that means that if you don't walk into a, a pitch session with total confidence and the attitude that I'm making this film with or without you, that you don't stand half a chance of getting the money. So, so they were buying on the passion uh, that you had for your project and, like you said, the confidence of walking into that room. But back then, we also were dealing with a lot of other things, too. I mean, in that business plan, we always had to deal with um, what I would call the Sundance Dream, where these filmmakers made this movie on pure speculation that hopefully they would find an audience and, and frankly, a home. And then out of that, maybe some return on investment to go back to that initial investor. Would you say in your experience that that actually returning the investment was the least important part of, of the, uh, the pitch? Um, I don't know that it's the least important. It is a very important part. I work with filmmakers to create their business packages, and I believe that the most important, well, there's several, but one of the most important points is to be able to defend your comparisons. When you give five films that are comparisons, they darn well better be comparisons. They have to have budgets within the close proximity to yours and or they have to have the same element in, in the uh, uh, theme of the film. It could be loss. It could be separation. But uh, you cannot compare your film to 
paranormal or to some film that has two double-A stars in it, you have to compare your film to like actors and like budgets. Now, and, and I always recommend that you have one film in your comparisons that didn't make money, either lost or was barely break-even, because this is a risky business, and by putting that in there, you could save yourself a lawsuit. So first, it's the films. Second, it's defending the films, because when you get into the CPA, your donors or investor CPA office to discuss them, the, the CPA is going to say, I don't believe this, that your film is like this. Why do you say so? And you, you have to know it right away and explain it. And I say you have five films because if they want to throw out two, you still have some comparison with three films left. Um, so the, I think that's a key issue. And I don't think that you go too big on the return on investment. When, when you should tell someone you can give them back their investment plus at 50% uh, that you think that based on your comparables that they'll make 50% extra, don't do that. It's, it's your CPAs don't like that. Well, you, you, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Carol. They, they think it's too much. I mean, be realistic. I'd never go over 30, maybe 33% uh, after you get your money back that you, that the film could make that. Then if it does make above 33%, you've got the happiest investors in the world. So I, I like it that where it's more realistic. Well, you also talk about some other interesting, you know, in the art of funding and, and some of the other things that you talk about, uh, something nonprofit filmmaking. Now, this is a concept that some filmmakers uh, know a lot about. I happen to be one that's always been working in the for-profit space. So could you tell me, about, what's a nonprofit film? What's, what's that funding strategy look like? Well, um, From the Heart Productions is a 501c3, a not-for-profit corporation. So we work as a fiscal sponsor for filmmakers. And, and I will say that 70% of the films I sponsor are documentaries or short films. But now uh, short, uh, independent films can be made for s such small budgets that they are coming through our, uh, not, uh, through our fiscal sponsorship. Now here's what happens. They fill out a form, a contract with us, saying that they are um, making the film and we agree that we will accept the money for them, give the money back to them less 5%, and that we will monitor their production. And so then they go to a donor and, and pitch their film saying that they have a nonprofit company who is sponsoring them, has, has looked at their materials, and believes that they have a good product and that they will be monitoring their production. And this makes the donor feel good. Now, I usually write a letter or, or sometimes make a phone call to people who give large donations. So I called this one woman recently who had made a second large donation to an independent film. And I thanked her for her kindness. And she said to me, well, you know, I love to help her. And so give, getting an immediate write-off from my donation is so wonderful. You know, she asked me if I would like to invest in the film, and I said, oh, no, I can't afford to invest. Um, I can't take that chance. But I can definitely give you the money. 
Now, can you imagine? I mean, that's her mindset. Yes. Uh, so, 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 so for her, it was more beneficial to have the write-off than the chance of either succeeding or, or not succeeding with an investment. Absolutely. And, and she had this benevolent feeling that she said, you know, without my help, she might not make this film. And she loved it. And that, that was, I mean, that was her motivation. She was helping a friend, she was getting a write-up, and she was tickled. Now, out of, out of your whole, um, out of your sampling of people that have made those types of donations, are they usually private individuals, or are they corporations, or, or who usually makes those kind of donations on behalf of the filmmaker? Most, most of the documentaries are financed uh, 60 to 70% by people, Jason. Okay. We do get grants, and we get. Uh, and the interesting thing is that a couple of filmmakers have gone through um, Prudential, Google, General Electric. All of those companies have matching grants. So if an employee of one of those companies gives you money, they can apply to their corporation to match their grant. So a $5,000 donation can turn into a $10,000 donation. And, and I, I know you're not a, a CPA or a lawyer, but, but it seems to me that a vast majority of that would be tax, a tax write-off, right? It's all a tax write-off for the donor. Now, and I know there is a place somewhere along the line where after you have raised your money, shot your film, paid your crew, paid yourself for as writer, director, whatever, that you will be in profit. And when you hit that profit place, you pay taxes. I know it's probably a little more complicated than that, but basically that's the concept. Basically, you've, in this whole scheme of nonprofit, and it's, I don't say scheme to say that this is a bad thing, but in this business model, it's amazing to me because now filmmakers suddenly have the ability to put a project together and maybe you don't want to take that investment route where you want to go out and pitch investors and give away equity in your project. You can now go to some of these folks and say, um, hey, have you made your charitable donations this year? Well, I have this great idea. You want to help out? Exactly. Well, even with all of these wonderful tools that are available to us, you know, I, I speak with filmmakers to the website and folks that email me that are still a bit afraid to take that first step. You know, so they have all the wonderful how-to advice that, that you can imagine. Um, from that perspective, is that sort of what, what made you think about the second or the follow-up book, which is um, The Art of Manifestation? And let me make sure I have that title right. Uh, I believe it's Manifesting, Creating Your Future, The Art of Manifesting. Right. Well, I love that book because it's uh, divided into two parts. The first is how, what you have to do for you and to you to create the you that will go out and just have and attract money because you have to believe in yourself. It's all about faith, belief, self-confidence, self-esteem. All those things have to be yours, and you have to own them. And then I have interviews with people, Academy Award winners and uh, people in our industry, and one singer in there uh, who had a car wreck and was told she'd never walk again. And by uh, her faith and her belief in herself and working with her mind, she's not only walking but singing and dancing and uh, quite healthy. So 
are, we have powerful minds. That's what it's all about. And I think you got the first edition of The Art of Film Funding. I wrote Correct. that. And um, and then I decided that I really uh, that I didn't want to market it. I'd had a lot of fun traveling around the world for a couple of years, and I wanted to update it and to find a publisher. Okay, the main point here is that I had I knew that to find a publisher, I had to go get an agent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But before I did any of that, I started when I was doing my exercise every day. I would say, I love my publisher. I love my PR person. I love the designer of my book cover. I have a new book cover, and I have a second edition and all this stuff. And, and wait, this is before any of this was even came into your life? Yes. This was my planning. I was pre-planning, and I was visualizing, and I was so proud. And somebody would say to me, oh, you have a second edition? And I would say, yes, isn't that wonderful? And I swear to you, one day, Michael Weesey called me, who is a big publisher in the film world, and said, Carol, I just got a hold of a copy of your book, and I really like it. Would you like to do a second edition for us? Yes, I said. That would be wonderful. So that's how the second edition came about. And, and I mean, so I used the the second book to create actually the third book, which is the second edition. But um, it's your belief, your faith, your vision. And um, that's where it all starts from. But you've got to build up your own self-confidence because you get knocked down so much in this industry that you have to look at every no as, okay, that's another no. There is a yes out there. There's a yes coming, and there is. You have to find it. Well, yes, it's all it's all based on, on on sort of that probability and your faith in yourself. Like you're saying, you know, it's interesting. Back when I was reading your your original book, um, I, I at the time wasn't quite sure if I would ever make a feature film, and I can remember driving around in my car, like talking, you know, that positive self talk. Which, if anybody had heard it at the time, it would have sounded very like I was crazy, maybe to some right. folks. But I would drive around and I would do something similar to what you're describing, where I'd say, um, I, I was a little bit more general, but I, I said, I'm a feature filmmaker. I make movies. I have made. I, you know, it was either in past tense or present tense, um, not so much future tense, because I really wanted to, you know, feel it. And um, some of that may seem a little bit hokey, but it's also the same driving I, I think, and, and maybe you can help me with this, is once you start thinking something over and over and over and you get it in your body and then you're like, there comes a time where you're not trying to fight that belief anymore. And oddly enough, you wake up one morning and you realize, oh my gosh, I made that feature film. And now the second feature film is like, it's, I don't know, it's like going to the refrigerator and pouring a glass of milk. You know yes. how to do it. Yes. It's, a, it's and, absolutely right. My, my thinking now, especially with all the changes that the industry is going through, there's a whole bunch of negative talk out there about how uh, independent filmmaking is dead and will never make a living making independent films again. Um, I, I think these mental roadblocks are, are hurting a lot of people. And I know you, uh, you for one, you're probably not thinking that way. What, what's your thought process in all these changes? 
Um, I think we have to, uh, the key word for filmmakers at the moment is flexibility. Kiss the two, three, five million dollar films goodbye for the moment. You're not going to return the money. That's what, that's what was told to me two years ago. And I said, oh, no, I'm never going to believe that. Well, okay, I had to believe it. And so, okay, what is the new route? Well, make something for under a million, give the money back to your investors, and make a second and a third film. But you have to bring down your budgets. And the, the, the other side of that is that there are so few actors working these days that you can get really big-name actors uh, for reasonable sums, right? Yeah. Have you been hearing that? Yeah, you, of course you can. And so you have to... Um, just roll with the punches and say, okay, what can I do for 750000 Because it was a friend of mine, Tom Malloy, who, who was going to make his fourth feature, and he uh, had a, a budget of a million two. said, this is not going to, I'm not going to be able to return that investment. So he, he rewrote scenes and knocked it down to 750000 He raised that money, and he's making the film. And his investors feel confident with his marketing strategies that he will return their investment. And I think that's what's really important right now. And I read some of your articles, which I think are brilliant, and I I noticed that you talked about looking to get your money back from VOD. So do you know how much you would normally get from one VOD play? Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I guess talk about turning the interview around. Um, <laughs> you're, you're right. You know, these are the problems that we're all trying to tackle. And I agree with everything that, that you said and also what uh, Tom said uh, about some of these things where it's very difficult, as you know, as an entrepreneur, that if, you know, if you were going out and buying, for example, let's use, your, let's use short ends as, as the example here. If back when you started that business, you went out and people said, well, it's going to cost you $5 a foot for, for these short ends, and you knew you could only get, I don't know, t- I don't know what you were selling them for, but what were they, $0.10 cents or $0.20? Cents or? Yeah, let's say $0.10 cents a foot, sure. So in reality, you were buying them for, I believe you said, what, uh, $0.03 cents a foot? If, if you could, at least. And then you turn around and sell that for, for a pretty good margin, right? Absolutely. Well, so that's so all of business is trying to trying to get a product, and I'll use products, but it could be services as well. But trying to figure out how to create a product or a widget for X number of dollars, so that you can go out and the value of that product is more than what somebody's willing to pay for it. So in other words, you, you, you buy low and you sell high, I guess, is, is the quickest way to say that in Business 101. So what Tom's describing with his movie making is he's only raising X number of dollars. You know, you mentioned $750,000 so that he can hopefully recoup that initial investment and get some money back to his investors, namely the initial investment as well as, uh, you know, whatever else follows, which would be gravy on top of that. Right. Um, I, awesome. I, yes, Business 101, economics, the reality is you have everybody and, and their sister making a really good-looking movie with a camera that they bought at the local electronics store for $2,000. So now we have a market flooded with competition. So the question that we keep asking ourselves is how do we make this a viable business? So Tom's, 
example of he he needs to make something for a low enough price so that he can sell high. Okay, that's fine. But the the difficulty that we're all faced with is how do we then relate that to a bunch of freelancers and as you mentioned, actors that are out of work that are used to making either their freelance day rate or their or their SAG scale at least. And unfortunately, the economics just don't work. So what I've been trying to figure out in the articles you referenced was probably, I would imagine, the modern movie-making manifesto, um, <laughs> which is just an idea of, and by the way, that's open source, and I want everybody to contribute ideas. I'm, I don't, I'm not the guru of that thing. Uh, it's a living, breathing kind of idea. But the, but the thought process is this. Can we make movies for a low enough upfront cash, as we know we can, but in the same token, can we compensate people what they're worth? And now that we have, and I mentioned video on demand distribution, now that we have a non-discriminatory sales channel as filmmakers, we can make these movies cheaply and get them out and get them selling to where they're selling, sharing self space, shelf space, virtual shelf space with the big Hollywood movies. And we can get them out there and get them selling. But if we can do that, then we need to create uh, a business so that we can pay people uh, a nice salary up front, and I'm talking a salary, not a freelance day rate, as well as give them stock options in the movie product that we're creating. So to put it another way, I'm just describing taking the entrepreneur's small business model where you go and you raise startup money, you hire on your team, you come up with whatever this product is that you're going to design, and underneath the same roof, you come up with a marketing and a sales and a distribution strategy for that, and you move forward. And maybe you raise enough money for instead of one movie, but three ultra-low-budget movies, but because some of that money that you're raising is going to be allocated to upfront salaries, you can also make this acceptable to folks that are used to making a lot of money by giving them back-end equity, stock options in the company. So by the end of maybe making three movies and, and, and getting involved in this movie company for not just one project, but three projects, maybe by the end of it, one of the three movies hits. And instead of just being a once-and-done compensation program, now everybody owns back-end equity, so you've created a cash stream for life. In much the same way that you've just created a startup company that got bought by somebody else or it became profitable. And so that, you know, uh, you, you're an owner in that company. I think it's a brilliant idea. And I will say to you that the most important thing to address at this time for how do filmmakers make money is that there is a massive hole in the market. You have such dreck. Uh, the films that are out there are not enjoyed. I mean, at the uh, at Blockbuster, the woman said to me, why are they making so many bad films these days? <laughs> I said, because you guys buy them, you know, and, and people go to see them. But we have a lot of bad films. What about the criteria for this, this uh, new model is story, 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 brilliant stories that can be made and acted on a, on a low budget. Um, Twelve and Holding, I don't know what the budget on that was, but it was a delightful film. Um, we, need, we need to go back to films like Rocky uh, that show hope because we have to face 
the whole world right now is in financial problems. America is, no jobs, no this, no that. So when people go to the movie, they want to feel better. They want to, just for two hours, to raise their, their level of who they are. They want to feel empowered. And that's what we can do, is we can find stories that empower people, put those on the screen, come in under the theaters, under the studios, with the VOD, with the video uh, sales direct, with downloading, using all of the new technologies to get a good film out. That's what I think is, is the way to go. Well, um, you know, the inherent problems with, with making movies, um, we have to figure out in these business plans how to incorporate those passion films. And at the same time, and, and this is my opinion, and, uh, you know, a lot of folks disagree with it, and that's okay. But at the same time, we've got to do our research, too. When we're going out after these investment dollars, um, we unfortunately do have to look at not as much the comparables, um, in my opinion, as you mentioned before, but now we've got to look at who is our target audience, uh, how many folks are in that target audience, what's our budget, and can we sell enough units, can we sell enough product to actually in that target audience to actually recoup our money, and then by the way, how much is that going to cost us to 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 uh, you know for our advertising and marketing campaign? Exactly. Um, Let me tell you, I am um, I am a the fiscal sponsor for a man who's making a film. It's his second film. He won a lot of awards, but his first one, his budget's two million. He is making a film about a football star who gets into an accident from texting. Now. How is he going to finance it? He is uh, going to schools and pitching his film as a road service, uh, road safety concept, and it will be a good film for kids in high school and college to look at, and he's selling T-shirts to get his $2 million. So we have to do this call again in about eight months, and I'll tell you how he's doing. But right now he has set up a um, program so that he can have distributors all over the country at all the high schools selling his t-shirts and they automatically they punch in their number they put in their sales and then they get a check automatically back from some new program so that he is looking to have literally thousands of students selling t-shirts for him to make his film he would have to sell 60,000 t-shirts at $35 now, that's faith. Well, you know, to bring that back to your art of manifesting and creating your future, I would say that that is an example of a filmmaker who's passionate about what they're doing, and they're getting very creative about how they're going to accomplish it. They're not waiting around for somebody to give them permission. They're going for it. That's right. That's right. And so, and I'm working with him, and so that he can get the money, can come straight through the account, go right to him, and he can make that film. I think it is. It's it, we have to support each other in this industry, and I love the industry for that part. There are so many wonderful people in here. Uh, everybody has is in here to make a living, but they are here to help each other, and don't, and we have to remember that people are good to each other. Well, you know, if that wasn't the case, we'd all be doing something else. So we're, we're, definitely, <laughs> we're definitely here for the love of it. Um, yeah, I'm afraid we've, we've gone on quite a bit. We've covered a lot of, a, a lot of stuff today. Um, I, I'd like to, before we conclude, maybe 
you have a lot of experience in terms of being an entrepreneur, working with filmmakers, and, and you certainly know how to make things happen for yourself. A lot of the folks listening to this are, are either the veteran filmmakers that have been doing this for a long time and they see the industry changing and they're losing sleep at night, or you have some folks all over the world that are tuning in because, because of technology and, and, and how affordable and accessible it is now, they now have dreams for making movies. What kind of general advice do you have for all of us moving forward? And in fact, I'm asking you to give us a piece of hope. <laughs> I think there's a lot of room in this industry. Um, what is happening is sort of like a mushroom cloud, like that A-bomb, how it mushrooms out. That's what's happening. It, it's going in all different directions. And you have to use your creativity and, and keep reading on what is the newest form of digital downloads, where is it going now, and be on that cutting wave. But it all goes back to the basics of film, of storytelling. Find a film that has a compelling story and stay with the uplifting concept. Bring back dancing. Bring back tap dancing. Bring back something unique. Build your audience. I loved the way that Peter Jackson did a weekly report when he was making the film Kong. He was. Uh, he introduced us to everybody on his crew. He showed us how they made the sets, everything. And when the film opened in New York, there were lines around the block. Had a fabulous first weekend, and the critics said, "We don't understand this because we didn't like the film, but the public seems to like it." No, Peter had endeared himself to the public, and they were going to see that film no matter what you said about it. So that's the key to your marketing these days, creating a connection to your market, finding your market, creating a connection, and moving from there. What we do in documentary is we find a circle of partners. That is, uh, a woman who's making a film about the American Indian health care that we promised them and have not delivered. So she has all kinds of American uh, Indian companies who have partnered with her not so much that they're giving her money but they are talking about her film to all of their members so you you get about 10 of those companies or memberships that have two or three thousand members and you have a massive base so i think that we have to cross over and look at the docs and see how are they funding their films and consider using some of that with features and just in closing, I want to tell you, I love John Cassavetes, and I just wanted to leave you with one thought from him. Is that okay? Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, John says that what happens to artists is that it's not that somebody else is standing in their way. It's that their own selves are standing in their way. The compromise isn't how or what you do, the techniques you use, or even the content. But really the compromise is beginning to feel a lack of confidence in your innermost thoughts. Don't let that happen. Oh, that's a great, 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 great piece of advice. Um, for any of the filmmakers out there listening, uh, Carol, where could they find your books? Oh, thank you. It's uh, from theheartproductions.com. Um, both books are on that, and the full information on physically sponsored films. I'd love to hear from anyone who's 
wanting to get started that way. I'll talk to you about it, give you some advice. From theheartproductions.com. Well, great. I, I want to thank you for stopping by Filmmaking Stuff today. I know this has been enlightening for me, and uh, I'm sure filmmakers around the world really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jason, for this opportunity. Well, this has been a production of Brubaker Unlimited, LLC, 6767 Sunset Boulevard, number 153, Los Angeles, California, United States of America. And for more information about filmmaking stuff, check us out at filmmakingstuff.com.